Welcome to Pharma Launch Secrets, a podcast by Evermed. We host direct, actionable conversations with world-leading pharma launch experts that will help you launch your next product or indication successfully. Now, here's your host, Bozidar Jovicevic. I will hand it over now to our moderator, Bozidar Jovicevic who is the CEO of Evermed, and I hope I got his last name right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's always a challenge, <laughs> so it was close, <laughs> just Bozzi is fine. Uh, thanks for coming, uh, I know it's the last part of the day, so I hope, uh, uh, I assume you guys are all interested in content, <laughs> because that's what's going to be the topic. Um, so, how is everyone doing, by the way? Good? Yes? Here when you ask how, how, how are you doing, and people say not too bad, and sometimes I say, is that good? <laughs> this is double negation. All right, so we have a very diverse uh, panel today from global roles, European roles, digital roles, medical roles, um, and I encourage you to ask a lot of questions. So my name is Boji, I've been in pharma for 17 years at Most Vietnam Artists in Sanofi, I'm co-founder co of Evermed, our booth is the first one here, so come visit us. And today we'll be talking about um, content and uh, impact on behavior change and attitude change and many other things. So um, again, uh, please feel free, uh, towards the end we'll have time to, for questions. So you can raise your hand. I assume that the app is also working, right? So we can use that as well, all right? Or small rooms so you can ask questions. All photos are there, they seem to be uh, <laughs> correct. So um, I'll start with, we have Julia here, uh, Karen, Christina, and Alec. Uh, thank you guys for joining. Uh, I will ask each one of them to introduce themselves and I'll start to kick off with, with a question and then we'll take it from there. Good? All right, so I'll start with uh, Karen. Karen, you, uh, you work with CSL. You said that that's a uh, 10 to $12 billion uh, small, small biothink that no one's heard of. <laughs> and um, if you can tell us a little bit about your role, what you do, and then kick us off with really, what are the key success elements for content in 2022? Thanks, Posey. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. Great being here. Um, I'm heading medical affairs. You are about CSL Bearing. You had uh, the first uh, fires I tried with my, my boss, actually, head of Europe. He left already, so I can speak freely. Um, <laughs> so that's that's the good news. Um, I joined CSL uh, around three years ago. With feels like previous century because it was two months before COVID. And one of the feelings I have now that a lot of things about content and and about the way of engaging customers dramatically changed since then. But nothing went different direction actually it's always the same direction but it's getting accelerated and um, I'm heading next surgeon by training so sometimes I have like kind of surgical opinions to go and cut something rather than wait until things are getting uh, you know infected and uh, and people die from and from content perspective uh, I think what we were discussing earlier because is also what is what is the best way of what is the best type of content people we can think about and I have my my own way of phrasing this into four parts which first two is kind of more mandatory ones so second two more optional ones is content I need actually as a physician but I'm well, the physician before joining industry. So content I need is maybe there is an urgent problem or maybe I need something to treat my patients or maybe I need something which uh, is satisfying my scientific curiosity. The content I um, really um, trust 
to trust perspective and here we are coming into this difficult part of uh, should content come from independent sources or from pharma or from other type of organizations, the trust, and sometimes it's not easy to, to build the trust uh, historically, link also with the tone of voice, link also the way how promotional, non-promotional type of content. The content I like and different people prefer, I prefer personally video content, but I was driving recently to a uh, few days ago in a congress in Basel and I realized that actually I, I would prefer to have a podcast because, uh, you know, after I started to look into the video transmission there, I, I kind of um, saved myself from a car accident. So maybe better not to have a video in there. And maybe uh, the final part for me is the content which is easily accessible and enjoy interacting with because we have a number of websites but as physician, as a pharma person, where you have to log in 25 times, I have a content management system actually, which is I think much more protected than my bank account. I don't know who will be, you know, hacking that part. But uh, uh, every time I forgot the password and recreate it again, so this easy access and seamless access to part for me will be very important from the content perspective. Thanks for that. And I think you mentioned uh, you started with trust and talk about video and audio and, and formats. And, and I know we get asked often a question like, would doctors trust uh, content coming from pharma? It's always a big question. And actually, read somewhere that, that that's the level of trust is about 35%, and trust medical society's content is about 80%, and third party medical education, 70%. So it's really trust is like a worthy effort <laughs> to build and grow over time. Um, and, and some of the most uh, trusted brands are some of the biggest brands that we know, like Amazon. I read somewhere that some people trust Amazon more than they trust their spouses. <laughs> so it's like it works really well <laughs> for, for Jeff Bezos and Amazon. And then mention video and audio um, um, and, and uh, delivery and formats. Um, so, uh, Julia, maybe we uh, switch to you for a moment. Um, if you can share with us a little bit uh, about your role. Uh, I think it's really interesting what Novartis is setting up. You can share whatever you can share. <laughs> we feel free. And then... Um, with that in mind, and, and your setup in the Novartis, how do you think about the next like future of content and the next three years role of pharma and content? Yeah, it's uh, a lot of questions in one question, right? So I'll try introduction and... First. <laughs> <laughs> introduction first. Introduction so, um, first. So yeah, my name is Julie Richards. I head up uh, Creative and Digital, which is part of an organization called Connects um, in Novartis. Um, and essentially, Connects works like a shared services organization, but more for kind of consulting or, or those kind of more complex kind of services. Services So creative and digital sits within that. Um, and we would be an alternative to using like, you know, a publicist or a habit or something like that, right? Where the internal kind of creative agencies. So it is kind of a unique, um, I suppose, kind of positioning. We're opt-in, right? They don't have to use it. We're not mandated. Um, so we would pitch for work and all that sort of stuff like an external party does. Um, but we're, we're, we're large. We, we support all of the key markets and we're about... 300 people now that su support the organization from everything from, you know, brand and content strategy all the way through to, you know, omni-channel services and, you know, distribution through channels and stuff. So a, f a full gamut all the way across, I suppose, the content supply chain. Um, and it's, it, you know, I, I say we're kind of unique enough, but actually this is a growing trend that's happening, you know, within pharma, but also way outside of pharma. It's just kind of how big or, or how much you want to push us. So, but back to your other question, right, in terms of what's happening, you know, from, from a content perspective over the next three years. I, I, think, I think we're in a critical time of change at the moment, which is, you know, obviously driven by things like COVID and the fact that everybody, 
you know, before COVID, you know, Novartis had a very kind of digital first agenda, right? Where we were trying to make sure we had the right platforms and tools so that we really could drive digital content. But when COVID hit, obviously that accelerated all of the efforts and forced people to think a bit differently. And I think what a lot of us did, you know, in Novartis and across the industry is we just took all of our content that we had and we made it digital and then we sent it out, right? So you ended up in this scenario where people were being bombarded with what was essentially generic kind of, you know, marketing materials. Um, and, and I think we're feeling the kind of pushback from HCPs and patients and stuff like that on now. So if you're kind of asking me where things will go, I think there's a couple of things we need to look out for. I think firstly, the role of the marketer is changing. It's becoming much more specialized. Um, and that is allowing, you know, to keep the, the IP internally, but also being able to really challenge and aggregate the data and drive the insight with less reliance on kind of partners to help us do that. Um, I think from a content production or how we make content perspective um, I think there's there's going to be a move away from those kind of global very large scale content factories where it was all about churning out a high volume of content and the focus is moving you know much more towards that kind of dynamic content optimization content on demand um, you know and, and really kind of leveraging you know social networking and stuff like that and, and social networks in order to be able to kind of get and, at that content out there and resonate with the HCP so it's really about kind of getting towards that HCP to HCP or that you know patient to patient kind of content um, and you know and, and really kind of generating that kind of moving from that push 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 to more of that pull right um, so a couple of examples of, of kind of how we're moving in that direction um you know well you know this very well because you were part of the design of it right but uh, um evermed uh, did support us in in developing out an on-demand um content platform uh, or content hub which we call peak it's personalized education and knowledge um platform which is targeted mainly at rheumatologists um, and really what this is is an on-demand platform, as I said, that has multiple pieces of kind of short form content. So exactly what you were talking about, Karen, it's like the video, the podcast, you know, the mini documentary series, everything's kind of less than kind of 15 minutes. Um, but what we've done is that we've made this content with the rheumatologist. So it's been very much co-created. Um, and the intention is that that means the content is the content that they want or they need or that they will find valuable. Um, now we only launched it a couple of months ago, so we'll see how it goes. It's a, a kind of a three-year pilot, but the hope is that that will allow us to get a better understanding of how rheumatologists engage with content, how they, you know, what they want out of it, how they're going to get value out of that. Um, and that, that's, so that's kind of an exciting thing that's just launched. Um, and then otherwise we're kind of using tools. We're, we're using things like um, flash talking so that we can make our banner um, advertisements a bit more kind of um, market, a bit more automated. Um, and the beauty of things like that is that it means you can do it at speed and you can do it at volume, but at the same time, you are able to update very quickly, right? So it's, it's that kind of speed and, and being able to react to the data. Um, and I suppose it's kind of a, a step into that dynamic content optimization that we're looking to move towards. 
Oh, thanks yeah. for that. And, and you mentioned, I mean, a lo lot of pharma companies when COVID hit, they were like, okay, we just digitize everything we're doing in person. It doesn't work because of, they say people say content is king. There is another thing called context. <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, uh, we mentioned once like conferences, I think Karen mentioned is that some, t some of the conferences try to kind of just copy paste what's done over the four days when you're in person somewhere. It means you don't have patients, you don't have family members, you're there for four days to network and learn. And now you cannot copy paste that experience and expect someone to be in the room watching for four days of content. So you need to take that context and all the patients they're seeing and everything else and then see, okay, so how would the digital content work for this context? And it's, it's just such a huge thing. And I, now I think after that shock phase and scramble phase, we are now getting into optimizing what's the right uh, content and everything. So Peak platform, yeah, it was in Fierce Pharma. I know it, of course, very well. We, we, we were the partners for the technology delivery. And I think that was encouraging to see uh, focus on HCPs and what HCPs want and like they want short form. They don't want to sit for 60 to 90 minutes maybe to watch a webinar. They want personalization. They want more video and audio. And if you start to think that way, oh, that's how all of us are. <laughs> so all of us want short form. All of us want video because of the higher retention, easier to learn and all that. So. Uh, with that, I remember, uh, Alec, we had a, a conversation and, and you were saying how uh, if content was a product, that life cycle should be two days, not six months. <laughs> and uh, the question is, in this new world where there will be way more content being produced, where the HCP's journey of discovering new treatments starts with content, doesn't start with the rep and MSL. In most cases, it starts with content, <laughs> like, you know, everything else. Um, the question is, um, what are some of the most common pains you experienced? I know you share some of the stories. And then how do you think that we can accelerate <laughs> that life cycle? That's a you know, million dollar question. For sure, yeah. So um, in my role at Faring, basically, I had the chance to work from sales, medical, marketing, and also global function. And uh, what uh, struck me is, indeed, I mean, we talked about many things, and I agree with, with my colleagues here, that indeed it's a, it's a multi-dimensional multi problem. So it's the format, the rich media part is creating better engagement. We know it because our HCPs are also human beings consuming Netflix and many things, right? So it just, we, we can't bring a boring two hours video to a format where now you have their kids consuming TikTok, you know, on a one minute 30, right? Uh, but that's kind of a, a one place. Context is another piece because we came from a world where we've seen A to B campaigns to conversations, which means our story needs to be relevant uh, faster to the point to create that engagement. And a story and a conversation that starts on one channel and on another channel, it's a, it's a different beast. And that stress coming from multi-channel and omni-channel created a problem in my organization where the bottleneck was content creation. And not everyone was uh, suited for, for content creation. So one, one team that did well was uh, medical. They had a lot of things to say. They, they knew the therapeutic area, they had the scientific juice that attracted our HCPs. But suddenly, if the sales rep is a Formula One driver in the omnichannel car, and the fuel is brought by medical, wh where is marketing? And marketing uh, could not just sit doing the nice banner on the email, right? They, they had to, to, to do more. And I think th that is where we saw the bottleneck. They were not used to create that content machine at scale. So while medical could talk all day long on creating tons of content, they, they just had to, to transform that content, as you said, you know, in the shiny piece, right? But that was okay. The juice was there. 
and this was interesting to work with an HCP association. But when you come to promotional material, that was a different story. We took six to nine months usually to create an interesting piece, and and then we when we test it, right? It is old a little yeah. bit by the time. So, right? Yeah. So so that was for me in my experience. We really struggled to create that dynamism with the marketing teams, the brand teams. And we ended up during COVID, to be, to be fair, and I'm not, uh, it's not a critique to my uh, marketing colleagues. It's, it's just that we ended up, from a digital perspective, working a lot with the medical teams. And we basically started to rely on the uh, channel to make it nice. And marketing was kind of looking at the data afterwards. And they, they became an insights house. To, to try to do the next best action after, after the sales rep call and so on. But then there was a missed opportunity to really say, what is a story or behavior we want to impact and change through that video or through that we missed it. And it's okay to say we missed it, right? We, we, we can always be better at, at that. Yeah, and that's okay. That's acknowledge where things we can do better. But that's not what people commonly think when they think medical marketing because they think of the marketing people move faster. They also move from one job to another much faster. And then in, in medical, there's a little more stability is different. So it's interesting to bring that perspective and an experience that was different, where medical was, was a driver and provided that scientific juice and then... They had the direct link to sales, I assume, with proper firewalls and everything, which every pharma has to do, right? That's interesting when you said medical marketing. Not every company has that medical marketing concept, right? Where basically the package is marketing-led and the content is medical. And whatever comes out of the door is promotional anyway, right? Uh, but in my organization, we had two different silos. Medical was having a story that was yeah. quite juicy for the HCPs, and marketing had a story that was more promotional. And those two uh, worlds competed in my organization, which made us uh, choose for COVID purposes where to go. We went where there was more content medical. And, with, and medical, and where there was more demand, which was medical. So this created a kind of a, a, a stress point in the organization on saying, what is the purpose and role of the, the brand teams then if the content is, which is a good discussion to have. Yeah. What is the added value of marketing in a world where uh, medical, uh, global medical affairs teams will, will basically drive the content generation. Yeah. And that's a really interesting question to, to ask because um, I was at medical affairs conference uh, last week and, and one of the things is that medical affairs has always been like, um, do we belong to the clinical development? Do we belong to commercial? Whose baby are we? <laughs> it's always, always like that. Now there are more and more chief medical officers and you know they have their own kind of function. And it has a growing importance, I would say, because there is more and more emphasis on push and pull, not only push and product messaging, but there is more emphasis on scientific peer-to-peer -peer exchange, right? Because we mentioned trust. So, you know, if I have peer listening from a peer and that's enabled by pharma, so I will watch that because, I'm, you know, it's peer-to-peer -peer exchange that starts with science and maybe disease-related content and then continues with product-related content. So help me as a physician learn what's new because, yes, I'm overwhelmed and busy, but I still need to know what's new. If I'm a cardiologist, I need to know what's new in cardiology, like short form or any format that works nowadays, and then I'm open to listen about the product. So that's where I think, really to what's said, I think that medical will play a significantly stronger role and then the channels are more dictated by, by doctors and then their preferences, right? Because at the end of the day, it's what they need that we will try to adjust to. Um, Christina, so uh, you work at Bayer, um, a global uh, medical role, um, and uh, you're focused on college. So if you could share a little bit how 
is the world of oncology is different from in terms of channels, in terms of preferences, than um, maybe some of the points earlier made. What do they want? What channels do they want? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so um, I work in the global medical affairs team uh, at Bayer Oncology as a digital lead. And uh, I think when we think about content, the first thing that we need to focus on is what do our stakeholders, and I will include patients, not just the medical doctors and our uh, thought leaders, um, what are their behavior? Where do they go to access the content? And when we think about that, especially in oncology, uh, we, we did some research and there are a lot of reports out there that so, of course, face-to-face -face is one means, but after, right after the face-to-face -face interactions, applications, emails are, are equal to social media channels to access content. So then you think about the channels and then based on the channels, what type of content can you share? When we talk about applications uh, like endemic uh, apps where uh, doctors go to and discuss uh, case studies, Again, it's very um, relevant to think about content that can be easily accessible and very short, uh, not, not very long and not, uh, as you mentioned, think about the behavior that every person has accessing Netflix and wanting to have uh, more um, easily uh, consumed. Uh, content. And then when we talk about social media, I think oncologists, uh, they are really good at uh, using Twitter, especially during congresses, uh, the biggest uh, conferences like ASCO and ESMO. You see that you have huge, huge discussions on data uh, that are being presented. And actually, uh, just yesterday, we had a patient ad board, a digital patient ad board, and we asked the patient, so where does the patient community go to uh, access the scientific content during those big events? And they said, yeah, of course, we summarize all the... Um, all the presentations during ASCO, and we share a brief, you know, tweet uh, summarizing all the all the presentations on Twitter. So uh, you see that uh, it's it's very focused on where do our stakeholders go to access the information. Um, yeah, and another, I guess we can discuss later, I think another point of view is, is the metrics and the KPIs and how can uh, measuring uh, your, uh, your campaign can direct uh, the content and your second campaign and yeah. um, improvising basically and trying different things. Definitely, we'll definitely come back to the topic yeah. of impact and KPIs. Mm -hmm. I think it's always the question when you mentioned the word impact and there are 20 people in the room, like there are 20 different opinions what that means. <laughs> so maybe we will cover that uh, here. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the channels and Karen, I know we had a conversation about uh, different channels and I know, for example, in your line of work, you in rare diseases, gene therapy, it's very different than launching a product in cardiovascular, right? You deal with like a very specialized situation with a small number of stakeholders, small number of patients, a small number of, um, of specialists. So um, how, is Mar uh, how, how is reaching them through content different than more, you know, um, a specialty like cardiologists and also in terms of uh, channels. I know we had a discussion also about, you know, Twitter versus one minute video versus three to five minute video versus, you know, summary from a conference. So how does that work in, a, in that yeah. world? I think the rare diseases area and, and highly specialized care has 
specific challenges to that, but I think they are more and more common actually than we, we could think about this because I feel like we are going into a, a combination of several smaller disease areas and probably, you know, Humira area when 70 billion product, uh, no one is from Abbott here, they probably are over. It could be still some, some products coming to that level, but it's a smaller groups of big, uh, highly specialized products. Uh, we. We have therapeutic areas where there are 10 people in a given, in a big country, in a big European country, or maybe if we think about channels, there is, in one diseases areas I work, there is one physician who has, who is known TikTok star actually through his daughter who is a young star. So there's one person actually in the world in that type of area. So if you do content on TikTok with uh, targeting this area, there's one person only who can, who can do that. So there, I think challenges I see personally is, is one is, uh, what are your metrics that it's 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 not anything you could think about it's not valid anymore because any number of engagement you know um, you uh, there are I think 28 physicians treating bleeding disorders in UK basically so if you if you do a content which is specialized to NHS uh, and within a given healthcare system well you can get all of them in one room so why you need a content for them from that perspective I think the the uh, hidden agenda I always had that they've, that the contract production is part of your engagement also, and it's not only just doing a content to delivering to everyone, but also by the fact that collaborating and co-creating content, you are also having uh, first you are avoiding this very famous known disease which is called not invented here, and the second part is there actually you are creating a long-term relationship during this content creation process where together with the trust also coming there and also with the fact that they, uh, the perception um, is coming that this is content which is not necessarily always produced for pharma. I think one of, one of the questions here now on the screen is how we build the trust actually towards, uh, towards content coming from pharma. I think this is the, the solution for me, is the co-creation part. Is it may be, people do trust, especially in rare diseases field, I think it's maybe a little bit different in other areas. They do trust pharma content because historically, in many rare diseases, pharma was really driving disease awareness in rare diseases. But without pharma, nothing would happen in number of rare diseases. So there is a trust. We just need to be careful and uh, uh, not be careless with this trust and nurture the trust and keep it, uh, you know, as as I know it's a dirty word for uh, for this type of meetings, as non-promotional as possible. By non-promotional, I mean, uh, you know, customer focus and adding value to customers rather than only adding value to the company. Yeah, and. You know, also one of the things that, and again, a topic of trust will be everywhere because it's at the core of how we do business. It's the core of how we interact. interact. It's the foundation of everything. And it's not binary, right? It's, it's usually not like I trust or I don't trust. It's usually somewhere in the middle. And that's why I use percentages. And it's, it's really uh, uh, worthy effort. And I think co-creation of that and really being that scientific partner, you know, to the community showing, hey, I really care. I'm committed to this disease. And yes, we have a product, and yes, we have a pipeline, and we want to be able to add value to you, doctor, and then get permission to talk about it. I think, I feel like the whole world is going in that direction. I always use the example of like buying a TV. So, you know, maybe 20 years ago, we would, I want to buy a new TV. So then I'm going to talk to a person from a TV company, right? Or Samsung or Sony, or I don't know. But now, like, who does that? Is there anyone here who does it? Not really, right? We, you know, go online, educate ourselves on different types of TV, you know, gain trust through consuming content, you know, five things to think about when buying a TVX, a 
<laughs> if Samsung is behind that article, okay, so maybe they're gaining my trust through educating me on how to make the decision. So that's really the, the world we, we, we now live in and then the content is, um, is driving like 70 to 80%. That's what starts from most industries of that interaction. Uh, and it will be a huge change. And I was thinking actually the first question Maybe Julia, given what Novartis is, is, is doing uh, right now with, with an internal team, how do we go from generic content delivered personally to personalized content? The word personalization is probably the hottest word of this whole year, right? Personalization, that's where AI, Recommender, and all that comes in. So how are you guys thinking about it, and what's the role of data in, in, in uh, producing content? Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it goes back to what I was kind of saying earlier on about um, you know, I see the generation of content moving away from this kind of whole scale factory build, right, which is that spray and pray that kind of will just throw stuff out there um, into being a bit more deliberate, right, and moving into that kind of um, dynamic content optimization and stuff like that. And that really is a day to play, right? That's about having, you know, that your content teams are not just purely, you know, your content writer and your creative, it actually brings in your marketeer as part of that, your um, analyst as part of that, your, you know, so it becomes this kind of um, hub of the, the, the right kind of uh, people looking at the content all the time, right? And this idea that a piece of content have, has a lifespan, it doesn't really, it only has a lifespan until you get more data that gives you a better direction as to how you change or, or develop that piece of content. So. If you're looking at where we're going in that space or, or what we need to do in that space, you know, I think it's moving, getting you know, much more kind of eclectic teams together to look at co content in a much more kind of holistic way. So that's, that's what we can do in terms of how we structure ourselves internally. But I think the biggest thing is really looking at that kind of on demand. It's, it's, it's that user generated content um, and it, it kind of you know when we're playing back to the trust thing as well i think your example was great about tvs right but i know for me i ask my friends i don't even you know i might validate what my friends said online but essentially i start with my friends and i think what we've got to to do is enable or facilitate the HCPs and the patient um, advocacy organizations to be able to do the talking and, and the, that kind of to generate that content. And we can be, we can really support them and enable them to be able to do that really well, right? So I think that's, that's um, something as an organization we need to look at. Um, and then the other piece is building in that behavioral kind of science into everything that we do. Um, I think that's something that, you know, Certainly, when I when I look at you know how pharma is managing and, and looking at content, it's probably you know it's getting a nod to, to behavioural science and stuff, but we maybe haven't really put our arms around it properly yet. Um, and I'd like to see us doing that a little bit more because that would really help us make sure that the content we are creating is not content for content's sake. It's actually every piece has a value and it, and it has a, a, a real kind of reason for um, for being in the ether. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like a flywheel, right? It's a, it's a progression because once you get the first pieces of content right and people start to engage with, to get there, which is success, then that the data starts to inform exactly. pr production of content. The same way that Netflix, this was many years ago when uh, House of Cards came out and then they said, well, they looked at the data and there was Director X with the topic Y, the White House, with this and that, would actually lead to successful show. This <laughs> so yeah. is like, okay, this is now different it. content creation. Um, also, you mentioned uh, the lifespan of the content. I think 
uh, we personally pers has ever been tested, like for example, conference content, and we discovered like there are a lot of these myths, like you know, around trust or around co-creation or around uh, lifespan. So, for example. Uh, a lot of people say, well, you know, conference is over after two weeks, no one cares about the, that, it's already old. Yeah. We found that actually for six, six months it's still fresh. <laughs> and, you know, depending people don't have topic, time to consume everything yeah. in two days, right? Depending on, depending on the topic, people are coming back to that content two years later if it's still a relevant it's, topic, right? You know what I mean? And um, your data shows that, right? So. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> yeah. I think, and that's the, the whole point. It's making sure that you're developing content that, has, that, you, can, that you can track the data on and that starts with the right intent, right? And you do those two things together and, and you'll be much more successful with the content you put out there. It's going to be really interesting, I think, in the pharma going into more uh, content because a lot of other industries went to that huge change where they need to engage in the front end of the experience with content. And, and, and another thing that I often hear is like, oh, you're regulated industry. I'm like, finance is also regulated. There are many other regulated industries and even the industries that are less regulated I'm sure that when something goes out from Apple, that there is 15 people reading it before it comes out. So, you know, we, we just think, you know, over years we developed this, so we regulate. Um, so uh, I would, I want, uh, definitely want to come back to the question of impact, <laughs> Christina, because there was a question like, okay, we create content, why do we create it? And I think, uh, at least from perspective of medical, it would be good to hear how you guys think of, uh, of the impact of content. Is it you know, any specific actions that people take with the content when they consume it, or is it attitude change or behavior change, or how do you think about it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we need to start that medical is not really great in measuring the impact yet. <laughs> we have some work to do on that. And, and uh, uh, of course, um, we start with the basics that we need to measure and really focus on KPIs and, and really, um, work on on the KPIs to inform the second campaign and the, the, the one after that. I really love the presentation um, Chema did on, on, the, uh, on the next, on the second uh, room and he said that, okay, if you have the click-through rates of an email and you see that it's very low, uh, focus on sending that email only to the people that you, they, they opened it and improvise and, and enhance the content. So, of course, you, you can play around and you can do many things um, when you send emails, and I'm, I'm touching on emails because most medical teams do that and it's, uh, uh, it's, it's practiced uh, practice across medical teams. Uh, you start uh, by sending a link and then you think, okay, how can I enhance the content of my email? How can I put a video or how can I uh, include, you know, a link out to the website to keep basically the, the stakeholder, keep the doctor uh, on our platform and direct uh, him or her uh, to our website to access more content there. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think this is where the impact comes in place, and, uh, and measuring really, and even reiterating on the on the on the KPIs that we need to measure. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks. So, Alec, I know you have also an opinion on this. <laughs> so, yeah. so the impact of content. Uh, we heard about medical perspective. Uh, how do you think that connects with co what commercial does? What can be measured? What cannot be measured? And uh, also. Do you think that there is, I'll ask this actually second question, I wanted to ask about external versus internal, how much should we bring in? Yeah. <laughs> but let's first start with the 
So from a, an impact perspective, I think the ultimate goal that we can share across TAs, across uh, companies is behavior change, right? We want to impact a certain behavior with what we do. So and this is a shared goal between medical and marketing. Outside of the door, we, we are doing this to create value, to, to impact a human being behavior from uh, unaware to aware, from aware to intent to prescribe, right? I, I'm talking business, right? So at the end of the day, we, we are not a charity type of business. So we want to make sure that the value we transfer scientifically has proven as a uh, behavior change in the clinical practitioner we have in front. And that means we have to um, anticipate the creation of those content, uh, either with high quality and high preparation, and we are very much regulated, so it takes time to have this wow effect. And we know about modification videos, you know, they, they take crazy amount of time and money to, to do. Uh, or you can play, which is what we've done, sorry, we've done a, um, an authentic play. So we ask our sales rep, we said, you guys anyway, you have no chance to bombard the, uh, the, the doctors during COVID because they were saving lives potentially, right? So we said, do a synchronous video like you were talking to your grandmother. Right? Just send them like a reminder that you exist, that you are here to listen to them. And they started to, to take their phone, like if they were talking on the Sunday to their grandmother and say, hey doctor, you know what? I'm here to help. If I can help you with services to triage uh, patients, or if you need anything to uh, filter the scientific publication we have, we have an army of people that can do that for you. Let, let us help you. Let us be a business partner to your clinical practice. And I think then we, they started to do that. So some of our sales reps started to say, yeah, I'm going to take a one minute video and asynchronously create that engagement. And it did, you, uh, to answer one of the questions on the, on the board, uh, we had actually doctor answering saying, thanks for sharing this. I look after when I put my kids to sleep, right? It's asynchronous. So we, context, we kept the line of communication in a non-disruptive way. And I think if you are bombarding, uh, even if this is good content, but if this is not authentic, then it feels a little bit, yeah, okay, it's a mothership talking to me, right? Nice, but... Big know, brother. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah, but if this is a human being that they've seen, and it's important, they've seen that human being before, mm -hmm. it's just they, they've been disconnected, then the reaction will be quite okay. So authenticity, I think, is a good way to create that conversation. I'm coming back to that word because the channel has changed, but we are talking about stories and conversations. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And especially in the world we're living in, I think 2022, where the access to information, everything is becoming more transparent. So, so kind of when you say something, it can be like broadcasted all around the world and people can do fact checks, which they've been doing for, for many years now. So, and I think it, it has a powerful value and it comes back again to, to trust. Because more, the more authentic you are, the more trustworthy you are, the more trustworthy you are. People want to do business with you or want to use your products. It's just how it is. Um, now we have... Um, a couple more minutes, so I want to make sure we cover a few questions, if we can do like maybe um, uh, at least one minute answers if I ask you. So, what's the biggest challenge of getting HTPs involved in content creation and content feedback? Who wants to take that one? Maybe. Maybe okay. I can start because I think uh, we definitely want to uh, co-create content, but from a medical point of view, especially when we're talking about co-creation of content on social media, many times you, you have internal barriers and you have compliance issues and legal issues. Issue. So um, it's it's 
And we need to approach it as building a long-term long traditional partnership with, with our thought leaders. So uh, you need to start building that relationship. Also start maybe, we, we started doing uh, social media trainings for our thought leaders to teach them how they can post content themselves on social media. Mm -hmm. So this is a new, um, is, is a way to start engaging in this conversation with them and then building that partnership so that they can be uh, happy to co-create content with us. And of course, when the content, especially on social media, comes from their peers, it's much more uh, valued and more, um, let's say, um, yeah. uh, reaches more, more people. So. Uh, that's yeah. maybe one of the challenges, the internal um, compliance challenges to approach that. But uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, and you said, you know, how, you know, how can I be of help? That's the question that you mentioned. Like when you have that mindset, how can I be of help? How can I be of help? Like help you, doc your doctor, adjust to how the content is created. Maybe, you know, share the best practice. You uh, want to um, add? Look, I, I think, you know, HCPs are human, we're human. I, I'm sitting here talking to you to share my knowledge. They're the same, right? They, they, they kind of, they're happy to share. Um, I think you're right. It is about making sure you have the right um, internal procedures and that you've built relationships, right? You're not just asking people you've never met before. But in, in, in general, if you've got um, a reasonable relationship with, with a group, like um, in our case, it was the rheumatologist for the, for the thing, um, they're pretty open to speak to their own community, right? as long as they don't feel they are selling your wares for you, as long as it's a genuine, authentic, sharing my knowledge with my community, I think you'll find people are pretty open to that. Thank you. We're coming back to the notion of authenticity <laughs> and trust and, um, and working together. Uh, MLR, te MLR teams are often the bottleneck in content creation. Well, <laughs> how can we solve for that when the volume of content is only getting bigger? Yeah. can share that little bit of experience because in our work with Novartis, which is now public, we shared on Fierce Pharma two weeks ago. Um, so that team has produced content together with their med ad agency. Um, and like every other company, have MLR review. But I think it one of, some of the best practices really keep the uh, MLR, uh, if it's seen as bottleneck, that conversation won't go, won't go well. But if you see them as partner, that will actually help you get the content out there right, in the right, in a compliant way, and bring them close, work with them closely from the get-go, and have enough people to review. If it's important for organization, they have enough people with the right cadence, and editorial calendar, so they can plan the review and use some AI tools. There are more and more AI tools that can you know, reduce the time by 30 to 50% of MLR review. So if you set up the right structure, right people, right process, editorial calendar, starting with strategy, you know, uh, and link to an overarching goal, then the MLR, I would say, it's not a bottleneck, is actually would be a partner in this whole process. Um, Can I jump on that? Yeah. I think it's, uh, we all lived it. It's, it's a question of uh, context and interpretation. And it means we are missing positions from medical legal review teams on, on new things that comes to that desk. So one of the things that worked well for, for me at Faring, at least, as they were, as you said, partner. We, when we came from, for example, I don't know, social media, social media content and community management, right? We need to react in less than four hours and we cannot necessarily go to every one of them, right? To, to, we needed to have a, a position of what is acceptable to manage risk. And I think when you have a, a framework with them, so they helped create the framework of the solution, 
then you can replicate the framework and learn from the framework and, and, and scale that framework. And this is what we, we, I mean, we used a lot to remove the interpretation effect or the brainstorming in comments in Promomat, if some of you are using that, uh, that you have a lot of people opening doors in review comments. If you have a position paper uh, from the head of uh, compliance or legal saying, that's acceptable, that we are, this is a window of risk we are willing to take as a company, then that's it. Conversation is closed. Then it's black and white again, right? So that's uh, what uh, I would say can yeah. speed up the Thank time you. to market. I, I, I think, though, from a problem is big companies make big processes, right? And we've probably over-engineered ourselves into, and I, I, I think it's across pharma, we may have over-engineered ourselves a little bit, right? It is about bringing it, bringing MLR up the chain, right? And being part of the overall design, but um, what you got to recognize it's still a challenge, right? I think we've got pockets where we're doing it better, but... Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I know we're three minutes uh, of time, so first of all, please give them a round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> This podcast was brought to you by Evermed. Evermed offers pharma companies the fastest path to having their own Netflix-like on-demand video engagement hubs for doctors or patients. Make sure to search for Pharma Launch Secrets in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click on the follow icon so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Evermed, thanks for listening.